Leslie Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we often wonder why we are the way we are. I think as a country, we wonder that. I think as an individual, all of us think, who am I? How did I get this way? Who are we? How did we get this way? We ask everyone who ever joins us, where were you born? We don't care if you're a CEO, a great entertainer, a writer, a caller. Uh, it's always interesting to us, where, where, where were you born? Who were your parents? Who were their parents? Where were they from? It's fascinating. Ancestry, interesting and fascinating. Our guest today has looked to his family history to figure out these questions. Jonathan Puckett spoke with the Wall Street Journal in an article titled Searching Family History, Finding a New Future. He joins us to talk about his research in his own family history and how that helped him better understand himself. Thanks for joining us, Jonathan. Hi, it's great to be here. I'm going to start off just tonight. I do this sometimes. I'm going to start off with the piece because it, the piece drew me into you, so I want to draw the audience in as well. And again, the title is Searching Family History, Finding a New Future. It was in the Wall Street Journal uh, not too long ago. Many of us wonder why we are the way we are and look to our family history for clues. What we find can change our lives, as Jonathan Puckett discovered. When he was a child, Mr. Puckett wasn't quite sure where he belonged. What does that mean? Let's start right there. What, what were you worried about or wondering about? Why didn't you think or why were you wondering about belonging? Okay. Well, um, my family background, uh, well, my immediate family, uh, the family that I knew prior to uh, beginning my research, um, they didn't really have uh, too much education. I grew up in a rural Mississippi area, and uh, I was an honor roll student, straight A's, all, all of this sort of thing. And I uh, read immensely uh, British history, British literature, uh, continues to fascinate me. So I felt uh, a little uh, out of place in my immediate family. Uh, and that's what provoked me to begin um, branching out and uh, finding new, so to speak, new family members uh, who shared my interest. Now, you're thinking to yourself, I live in this place with these people, and I love them, and it's a fine place, but, but right. I'm, so, I'm different. And why am I the way I am? And why British literary history? By the way, I, came, I grew up in Dumont, New Jersey, working-class town. British literary history fascinated me. So did Russian literature. And as a kid, I'm reading Keats and Coleridge and Walt Whitman is, yeah. is inspired, of course, course, by the great lake walkers of, 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 the, of the British uh, literary period. And what did Whitman do? Well, the great American poet would sit by the Brooklyn Bridge and watch life walk by there, too. And so I always wondered, where did this come from? Nobody in my family, nobody. The Italian side didn't do this. The Arabic side didn't do this. So what did you do next? I didn't pursue it. I just went on and did what I did and... I, I just never wondered how I plugged in. I guess I should have, but I didn't. But you did. What was next for you? What What were next steps? What did you do? Yes. Okay. So I think initially, I um, I was not looking for at least consciously uh, uh, that sort of connection, but it grew into um, finding people like me. Uh, it, it began as just a general interest of um, my family's history. Uh, I was raised. Uh, largely by my grandparents, and they kept these family Bibles and uh, photographs and uh, all of these sort of things, and I uh, would look through them. Um, so 
my my uh, interest in genealogy had already peaked, and as I branched out, I started contacting these family members. It started with my maybe my grandparents' first cousins, and then I uh, I would uh, go larger, and uh, I would speak to uh, third and fourth cousins, and then fifth cousins. And um, I eventually added over 30,000 um, individuals to my file. But I met uh, wonderful, wonderful, extraordinary people uh, many, on, on many occasions. And I found that meeting and connecting with those people uh, was the most valuable um, asset in researching uh, my family history. Uh, I found, um, for instance... Uh, an uncle who was adopted out of the family. And um, he progressed, uh, even though he had a difficult childhood, and became an engineer, and he traveled the world. And I, I was able to locate him on the 1940 census, and he had never seen a photograph of his father, and I was able to show him that. And it was just the expression on his face, it was absolutely great. Um and that's what I uh, work towards, uh, showing people uh, things about their So family. this wasn't, uh, for you, this wasn't, let me pop on Ancestry.com, yeah. and this is no disrespect to Ancestry.com, but this was a personal quest, not just for identity, not just for meaning, but for story. And I, in the end, you, I think you kept bumping across, as good, I think really good researchers do, the human stories. Cor- correct. And... Um, I think researching ancestry is great, but you you don't need to stop at just uh, okay. This person was born here and he, he died at this date. Uh, you need to uh, attempt to understand them. It, it, uh, it's like reviving uh, a dead person to some degree. Uh, my third great grandmother, for instance, I, I knew nothing about her. No one really knew anything about her until I found. Uh, what we now know, uh, uh, she died in 1901 in her 20s, and she had two children, and we were unsure of what happened. And I found in her obituary, um, uh, she died in Sheboygan, and uh, she uh, died of heart failure at 26, or around 26, uh, because her husband had left her, and she had to revert to hard manual labor to care for her children. And without um, the steps... Uh, of uh, researching and uh, trying to figure out uh, these people, we don't have a clear understanding of them or, or an appreciation for them. So um, it's, it's gaining an appreciation for other people, uh, different people, uh, different backgrounds. I mean, I just, I'm, a descendant, I'm a descendant of Quakers, uh, Catholics, Protestants, Huguenots, uh, all sorts of people. Uh, you could have one dangerous and really prolific argument with yourself for about a quarter of a century, Jonathan. This is Lee Habib. We're talking to Jonathan Bucket, searching family history, finding a new future here on Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and we're joined by Jonathan Puckett. We continue our conversation. The article in the Wall Street Journal was Searching Family History, Finding a New Future. 
It was all about Jonathan's quest and desire to connect with his own ancestry and his own family. But he wasn't doing it by simply going on a computer and paying for it. Um, he was doing something much more urgent and much more meaningful, and that was looking for the actual connections. Tell us uh, you know, a, a few of the stories that most impacted you, that most surprised you. I spent a lot of weekends just traveling to these uh, relatives' houses. I'd never met them before. I'd, I'd call them on the telephone and tell them how I was related. And <laughs> we'd, we'd talk for a couple months, and eventually I would go visit them and see them. And some of the people I met are really fascinating. Uh, um, I met this one fellow. His name is Dr. Joseph Todd. I, I didn't realize that I had had many people in my family go to college, at least in my immediate family. As I began looking, uh, I found otherwise. But Dr. Todd went to Harvard and is a retired cardiovascular surgeon living uh, out of Cincinnati. And he uh, is a cousin of mine, a double cousin by chance. And we have shared uh, many great conversations. And it's really inspiring to know that someone was able to achieve that in my family uh, because he grew up in Decatur, Mississippi. He went to junior college at East Central Community College. Uh, and then he had this uncle who uh, had operated a trust fund in Yazoo City, Dr. Carl Day, and uh, he was able to uh, attend Harvard. And by the way, as you not only get inspired by this story, you get, a, in a sense, if not a mentor and or friend, you just find another really rich relationship in your life, Jonathan. That's true, and I still talk to Dr. Todd. We've spoken, uh, I guess, um, five or six years now, um, and I speak to many of my family members that I've located, and many of the relationships I formed are truly close and endearing. How did, you, how did your friends and family react to the, the, the commitment? Because in the beginning, you had to look a little crazy to your friends. Like, what's, what's Jonathan doing? But it, I, would, I, would prom, I would bet, and I'm, I'm a betting guy. I love betting. Um, okay. I would bet that it, the longer you did it, the more people who at the beginning thought you were a little odd started to go, hey, what did you learn? And next thing you know, you were probably telling them stories, and they were no longer critics. They were more than likely great fans. That's true. Well, as far as my family goes, they, my immediate family uh, has always been supportive, and they helped me when I you know, planned when I planned my first reunion. I was in eighth grade, so I, I needed some assistance financially, at least, and um, they assisted me. But as far as my school friends and this sort of thing, I I do and I I would speak to them about uh, what I found or um, <laughs> interesting tidbits of not just my family's history, but uh, local history, state history. Uh, the United States history, because when you study genealogy, at least seriously, you're going to learn about uh, your, uh, your country's history or, you know, the history of the, uh, the, the local people or what yeah. have you. You know, I was taking my little girl through a, a, a graveyard here in Oxford, Mississippi. It's a beautiful space. William Faulkner is buried there. And, yeah. and so I, I was just, you know, having her look at the tombstones and the family plots and we noticed that every other family plot had these little, little, tiny, essentially where caskets were. And it just turned out that my little girl made that observation and said, Daddy, what, why are so many little babies buried in, in the cemetery? What happened? Was there a fire? I said, honey, kids used to die. 
Lots yeah. of kids just died. They died at birth. They died right after they were born. There were diseases. And she was just shocked, stunned. And I came home and I read her some of the letters from my, my great aunts and family members. And routinely in those letters, so-and-so's child died. Oh, it was so sad. So, I mean, every single family member had a family member who lost a child at a very young age. That's, that's true. And um, I, I have a story that might relate to that. Uh, in doing my research, I located where the home of my third great-grandfather was located. And I knew that he had several infant children and that uh, tradition, to always, uh, or people had always told me that the children were buried behind that house. So <laughs> I, I'm in the middle of nowhere, Newton County, dirt road, and I'm walking through the woods. <laughs> and but, but but I locate where the house was. The base of the kitchen was still standing, and behind that, I see this row of stones. And uh, that uh, exact number of stones, uh, number of stone correlates with the uh, number of infants that he had. So uh, I think that I located the burial place of his uh, infants. But yeah, and you see a lot of families, uh, particularly uh, agricultural families. Um, 19th century, it will have 11 or 12 children, uh, just because the likelihood of some of those children dying uh, was higher. Yep, higher, and I, and I think that's true, and and I think in, even in cities in the country, you know, the 19th and early 20th centuries, um, this was just very commonplace, and, yep. and it was something families had to deal with, and it's a great way of teaching history uh, and making it damn personal. And let, so, uh, one or two other stories, if you could. <laughs> okay. Have I spoken? Uh, no, I haven't. Uh, I met this fellow. He is really um, a role model of mine and continues to be one. His name is Dr. Harold Graham. He lives in Decatur. He was, uh, he went to East Central, then he went to USM, and then he, uh, he got a master's and he eventually got a doctorate, but he worked as a superintendent of schools. Um, in Louisiana for some time, and he worked as a school counselor. And this was uh, during the civil rights period, and he faced a lot of, um, oh my goodness, prejudice and uh, all of this. And uh, he he began researching genealogy, and uh, well, we, we connect uh, in the early 70s, and he, he continues to do so. Um, and he, not only does he focus on his family, but he focuses uh, on the history of Newton County families. Um, and he presented with me a lot of uh, techniques that I could use, but it also inspired me to pursue um, a higher means of education and to get in contact with these other family members. He provided me uh, countless phone numbers and hours of assistance. So, so another real mentor was developed, and in the end, this really helped you develop into the adult you are now, Jonathan. It sounds like this is an integral part of your development, maybe more important than your actual formal education. <laughs> it may be, and I've I've learned a lot uh, from my own research about um, how society works, about other people, and how to relate to them, and how to how to speak to them, and. I continue to learn as much as I can. Yeah, I think in the end when you're curious and you want to find out what stories are and you don't have an agenda, you're just going to always learn a lot about yourself because you're going to learn a lot about other people. And other people teach us all the time 
with the example of their lives, Jonathan. Uh, one last question. How has this changed yep. the way you understand yourself? Well, I see myself now as a much more, uh, well, I mean, I'm a single individual, but I'm comprised of many different backgrounds. So I've gained a respect for uh, diverse cultures uh, just because, well, I'm, yeah, I'm European, but I'm also uh, <laughs> uh, Asian a little, uh, which surprised me and uh, Native American, and uh, all of the, I'm, I'm formed of all of these different religions, and you just, you get a respect for, and an understanding for uh, other members of society, and you learn that the, um, you don't, you don't research your family history uh, for, for self-satisfaction, you do it for other people, and the, the true value of researching genealogy is to see the smile on the other person's face, uh, when you find out something for them or when you uh, show them a picture they've never seen or, or um, even uh, when you um, historically locate documents that are uh, important, uh, such as uh, I've located a diary uh, that someone had written during his tenure in the Mexican War, uh, things like that that are historically um important. And, well, you know, in the end, it, it is an act of love to do these kinds of things. And it's an act of service. And in the end, sharing these stories with others. Actually, you, you probably did more to bring your family closer than you could have ever imagined, Jonathan. I, I can only uh, 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 surmise that that was a byproduct of your work. Yeah, oh, I mean, at the family reunions I planned, and um, there were people, first cousins, uh, that I spoke to, um, uh, separately, but they had never seen, they hadn't seen each other um, in 30, 40 years, and they uh, now, I assume, speak with, with each other frequently, and uh, there's more, there's a better connection among my family members. Well, Jonathan, thanks for all you did and have done. Searching family history, finding a new future was the story in the Wall Street Journal. Genealogist, almost a master genealogist, Jonathan Puckett, at a very young age, just needed to find answers to his own family's life that couldn't be answered by anyone else but him and his curiosity and his quest to discover the truth about his own life. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. stories and Jim Morrison was an American singer songwriter and poet best remembered as the lead singer of the doors as a result of his lyrics his wild personality and performance and the dramatic circumstances surrounding his life and death Morrison is regarded by critics and fans as one of the most iconic and influential frontman in rock music history. He was born on this day in history 
1943. And today, we bring you Jim Morrison like you've never heard him before. Here's Jesse Edwards with the story. His fame endured as one of pop culture's most rebellious icons, representing the generation gap in youth counterculture. He was also well known for improvising spoken word poetry passages while the Doors played live. Jim Morrison was ranked number 47 on Rolling Stone's list of the 100 greatest singers of all time. Morrison was born in Melbourne, Florida, the son of Clara, Virginia, and Rear Admiral George Stephen Morrison, who commanded the U.S. Naval Forces during the Gulf of Tonkin incident. In 1947, when Morrison was four years old, he witnessed a car accident in the desert in which a family of Native Americans were injured and possibly killed. He referred to this incident in the Doors song Peace Frog on the 1970 album Morrison Hotel, as well as in the spoken word performances Don's Highway and Ghost Song on the posthumous 1978 album An American Prayer. Indians scattered on Don's highway bleeding, ghosts crowd the young child's fragile eggshell mind. Morrison believed this incident to be the most formative event of his life and made repeated references to it in the imagery of his songs, poems, and interviews. His family, however, didn't recall this incident happening quite the way he told it. According to Morrison's biography, No One Here Gets Out Alive, Morrison's family did drive past a car accident on an Indian reservation when he was a child, and he was very upset by it. Raised as a military brat, Morrison's family moved around a lot. He spent part of his childhood in San Diego. In 1957, he went to high school in Alameda, California, but graduated from high school in Alexandria, Virginia in June of 1961. Here's Jim Morrison's father, Admiral George S. Morrison, talking about the kind of child that Jim was. Well, Jim was a very uh, intelligent, bright young man and uh, behaved himself pretty well, really. And uh, he liked to uh, write and uh, draw pictures. He liked all the classics and uh, read everything he could get his hands on. And he was always delighted to go to his grandmother's house because she had a library. The, the life that I lived as a, as a naval officer required that you have a period ashore and a period at sea, which meant that it, probably half the time I was gone. I tried to make him feel like he was the head of the household, and he tried to take care of his mother while I was gone. Young Jim Morrison read widely and voraciously, inspired by the writings of philosophers and poets. His senior year English teacher said that Jim would read more than any other student in his class, and that everything he would read was so offbeat, the Library of Congress would have been the only source for what he was reading at the time. Here's Jim Morrison's sister, Ann Morrison. He was an avid reader. He read everything, and then he also wrote, he would write in a, he had a book, and he would, this was in high school, he would learn a new word, and then he'd write a whole story around it. So his vocabulary was incredible. One time he just got up out of class and told his teacher he was going to have a brain tumor removed, and he just walked out of class to go read. When he graduated from high school, he asked my parents for the complete works of Nietzsche. Most kids want a car. <laughs> In 1964, Morrison moved to Los Angeles to attend UCLA, where he made several short films. In the summer of 1965, after graduating with a bachelor's degree in film school, Morrison led a bohemian lifestyle in Venice Beach. Living on the rooftop of a building, he wrote the lyrics of many of his early songs that the Doors would later perform, the most notable, perhaps, being Moonlight Drive. Let's swim to the moon, uh-huh. 
Morrison and fellow UCLA student Ray Manzarek were the first two members of The Doors, forming a group during that summer. The now legendary story claims that Manzarek was lying on the beach at Venice one day where he accidentally encountered Morrison. He was inspired by Morrison's poetic lyrics claiming that they were, quote, rock group material. Subsequently, guitarist Bobby Krieger and drummer John Densmore joined. Krieger auditioned at Densmore's recommendation and was then added to the lineup. Here again is Jim Morrison's father, Admiral George S. Morrison, recalling how he reacted when Jim told him that he would be touring with a rock group. When he ended up in rock music, I was absolutely flabbergasted. Well, he called me on the phone, said he was going on the road with a rock band. And uh, it took me a little bit to gather in what he was really saying, but then, sure enough, that's what he was. And I told him, that's ridiculous. <laughs> that uh, you, you're not a singer, you can't sing. And I told him, he was, he was really, I said, you are on the wrong track here. Get yourself a job. <laughs> that, to me, was not a job. <laughs> the Doors took their name from the title of Aldous Huxley's book, The Doors of Perception. Huxley's own title was a quotation from William Blake's The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, in which Blake wrote, quote, If the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is, infinite. The Doors achieved national recognition after signing with Elektra Records in 1967, releasing their debut self-titled album, The Doors. The single Light My Fire spent three weeks at number one on the Billboard Hot 100 chart in July and August of 1967. This was a far cry from The Doors playing warm-up for Simon and Garfunkel and playing at a high school, as they did in Connecticut, earlier that same year. You know that it would be untrue You know that I would be a liar if I was to say to you Girl, we couldn't get much higher Come away and light my fire Here's Ray Manzarek, keyboardist and founding member of The Doors, about creating the groove for Light My Fire with Morrison writing the cryptic lyrics. Densmore says, look, we got to do a Latin kind of beat here. Let's do something in kind of a Latin groove. And I'm doing this left-hand line. So John's doing and, and we set up this Latin groove and then go into a hard rock four. And Robbie's only got a, a one verse. He needs a second verse. And Morrison says, OK, let me think about it for a second. And Jim comes up with the uh, with the classic line. And our love becomes a funeral pyre. You know, you know that it would be untrue. You know that I would be a liar if I were to say to you, girl, we couldn't get much higher as Robbie's. And Jim comes. The time to hesitate is through. In other words, seize the moment, seize the spiritual LSD moment. The time to hesitate is through. No time to wallow in the mire. Try now. We can only lose. Whoa, that's kind of heavy. Try now. We can only lose, meaning the worst thing that can happen to you is death. And our love becomes a funeral pyre. Our love is consumed in the fires of agony. And it's like, God, Jim, what a great, great verse, man. The time to hesitate is through. No time to wallow in the mire Try now we can only lose And our love become a funeral pyre Come away the light When we come back, the life of Jim Morrison This is Our American Story
those are American stories, and we now continue with our look into the life of Jim Morrison. Later, the doors would appear on the Ed Sullivan Show, a popular Sunday night variety series that had introduced the Beatles and Elvis Presley to the United States. Ed Sullivan requested two songs from the doors for that show, People Are Strange and Light My Fire. Sullivan's censors insisted that the doors change the lyrics of the song Light My Fire. Here once again is the Doors keyboardist Ray Manzarek with his first-hand account of this famous incident. 1967. Ed Sullivan was the number one show in America and one of the only places to see rock and roll. Light My Fire is the number one song in America and the Doors are invited. Fifteen minutes before showtime, somebody comes into the dressing room and says to us, uh, we have a problem, boys. Network won't let you say higher on national television. And Jim said to him, what are we supposed to say? And he looks at Jim and he said, well, you're the poet. Why don't you come up with something? Wire, flyer, and Jim's about to hit the guy. And I grabbed his hand and said, no, 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 for God's sake. So I said to the man, okay, 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 listen, here's what we're going to do. We will change the lyric. And he said, okay, I knew you were the sensible one. That's good. He walks out the door. Jim and John and Robbie come to me and say, we're not changing the lyric. I said, exactly. Sir, it just came out. Ed Sullivan wanted you for six more performances. You'll never work the Ed Sullivan show. What do you think of that? And then Jim looked at him and said, Hey, man, so what? We just did the Ed Sullivan show. By the release of their second album called Strange Days, the Doors had become one of the most popular rock bands in the United States. Their blend of blues and dark psychedelic rock included a number of original songs and distinctive cover versions, such as their rendition of Alabama Song. Well, show me the way to the next whiskey bar. Oh, don't ask why. Oh, don't ask why. Show me the way to the next whiskey bar. Oh, don't ask why. In 1968, The Doors released their third studio album, Waiting for the Sun. Their fourth album, The Soft Parade, was released in 1969. Around this time, Morrison, who had been a heavy drinker, started showing up for recording sessions visibly drunk. He was also frequently late for live performances. By early 1969, the formerly svelte singer had gained weight, grown a beard and a mustache, and began dressing more casually, abandoning the leather pants and t-shirts. During a concert on March 1st, 1969, at the Dinner Key Auditorium in Miami, Morrison attempted to spark a riot in the audience. He failed, but a warrant for his arrest was issued by the Dade County Police Department three days later for indecent exposure. I looked at you, you looked at me, I smiled at you, you smiled at me, and we're on our In May of 1970, while awaiting the Simon & Schuster publication of one of his poetry books called The Lords and Their New Creatures, he was attracted by the chance to talk intelligently about something other than the music scene. Jim Morrison agreed to a literary interview with a Canadian broadcasting company. The interview took place at the Doors office in Los Angeles of May 27, 1970, and was partially aired on Radio Canada, but was never published. 
From this interview, Morrison describes how he thinks the so-called hippie culture came to existence in America. The hippie lifestyle is really a middle-class phenomenon, and it could not exist in any other society except ours where there's such an incredible surfeit of uh, goods, products, and leisure time. I think that's, that's the reason for it, because the generations immediately preceding ours had uh, uh, world wars and uh, depressions to contend with, and uh, for the last 10 or 15 years in this country, it's, there's time enough, there's money enough to live a kind of a flagrant, uh, outrageous lifestyle which was impossible before. When asked about a line of poetry from one of his books that reads, quote, the cleavage of men into actor and spectators is the central fact of our time, unquote, Morrison goes on to explain that he was worried about the increasing number of people who don't want control over their own lives. I think what I was concerned with in that book was the fact that most people feel completely void and helpless in controlling their own destinies or con controlling the destiny of human life. It's sad. More people should be involved rather than uh, designating all these uh, powers to a few individuals. I think the average person, whatever that is, should should be a part of it somehow. And I, f I think everyone feels that events are just going on without their uh, knowledge or control. Decisions are made for you, in which you have no part of at all, and they just uh, seem to ignore it somehow, or, or not, or not care at all. Just let it happen, without ever becoming involved. I think that's sad. Here, Morrison goes on to describe people who he thinks have become hypnotized by media. When you think about it, I love movies as much as anyone else, but the, the spectacle of millions and millions of people sitting in movie theaters and in front of television sets every night watching a second or third hand reproduction of reality going on when the real world is right there in their living room or right right outside in the street or down the block somewhere. I think it's a tool to sonambulize or hypnotize people into a kind of uh, waking sleep. Jim Morrison then goes on to describe the difference between what younger people like to listen to compared to the kinds of music he was getting into at the time of this recording in 1970. You know, adolescence and uh, early youth, the fires are burning fastest, right? And your energy level is probably at its highest, so it demands a kind of raucous, screaming type music. I'm 26 now, and uh, I'm... Uh, I'm getting more interested in uh, in jazz, to tell you the truth. I I can't even listen to the radio anymore. You know, I like old old blues, cats, and uh, early rock and roll, and, and some other things. But frankly, I find most of it really boring. Following their album, The Soft Parade, The Doors released Morrison Hotel. After a lengthy breakup, the group reconvened on October of 1970 to record what would become their final album with Morrison, titled L.A. Woman. Jim Morrison's first major love affair was with Mary Werbelow, who he met on the beach in Florida. The relationship lasted several years, inspiring many of the songs of the first two Doors albums, including the 11-minute ballad, The End, 
which Ray Manzarek said was originally, quote, a short goodbye love song to Mary, unquote, calling her Jim's first love. Morrison spent nearly the entirety of his adult life, however, with a woman named Pamela Corson after meeting while they both attended university. They met before he gained any fame or fortune, and she encouraged him to develop his poetry. Jim Morrison joined Pamela Corson in Paris of March of 1971. During this time, Morrison shaved his beard and lost some of the weight he had gained in the previous months, but he died on July 3rd, 1971, at age 27. This is the end. In the official account of his death, he was found in a Paris apartment bathtub by Corson. The official cause of death was listed as heart failure, although no autopsy was ever performed. In the book Wonderland Avenue, Danny Sugarman discussed his encounter with Corson after she returned to the United States. According to Sugarman's account, Corson stated that Morrison had died of an accidental heroin overdose, having snorted what he believed to be cocaine. Morrison was buried in Paris one of the city's most visited tourist attractions. In the early 1990s, Morrison's father, Navy Admiral George Stephen Morrison, placed a flat stone on the grave with an inscription. Here, once again, is Jim Morrison's father and his sister, Anne, about that inscription. I went back to my Greek teacher and I said, uh, what we're looking for is uh, something for the gravestone which sums up his philosophy. So he put in Greek, um, true to his own destiny or true to his own spirit. And I thought that was just the perfect, perfect thing to put on his tombstone. And he went his own way and he was true to his own ambition, to his own aspirations. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And there you have it, the life of Jim Morrison, like you will only hear it on Our American Stories, born this day in history. And all of our This Days in Histories are brought to us by Hillsdale College, the best place in the country to learn all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will get to you with their terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And this is Our American Stories, and periodically we drill down on a book we think is important, and we spend an hour with the author. And the author has generally spent, well, not hours, not, not months, more than likely years drilling down on the subject themselves. And so always we like to talk to the author a bit about their own history, 
and then drive down on the book itself. And this month, the book is Tim Wu's book, The Attention Merchants, and it caught our attention in the Wall Street Journal, which had a compelling review and drove us to, well, ask ourselves, what's going on? And so joining us is Tim Wu. Tim, thanks for joining us. Oh, sure. Pleased to be here. Tim, we love starting off always with any conversation we have with anybody, whether it's an inmate or a celebrity, and we've, we've just about covered the full range here. Um, and you're somewhere in between an inmate and a celebrity. Uh, tell me a little bit about who you are. Where did you grow up? What were you interested in when you were young? And what led you to this place in your life that you're writing a book called The Attention Merchants? So that's a great uh, uh, question. So I was uh, born in Washington, D.C. My, my parents were scientists at the NIH. Uh, we grew up, though, kind of all over the place. Moved from Washington to, to Canada, Toronto, for a while. Um, spent some time in Europe, eventually came back to the United States. So I, I and then in the United States, I've lived on West Coast, East Coast, so a little bit of, of everywhere. I also spent a little time in Asia. My father is uh, Taiwanese. Uh, I don't know what I was interested in that was related to this uh, book when I was a kid. I did have a way when I was a kid of uh, memorizing advertising jingles, and uh, uh, this book does um, dwell very deeply into the uh, the history of advertising. And I guess I decided to write this book for, for a number of reasons. Uh, one is I just sense something is going on here. I, um, like everyone, um, I think feel more fragmented, a little distracted, think it's hard to focus. I mean, I thought it's always been true, but I think our environment has gotten um, much more to be one that distracts us. And, uh, you know, I noticed that effect. Many of the listeners may have felt it as well, where you sit down for an hour uh, and you want to write an email and then suddenly three hours have gone by or, and you don't really know what happened. Uh, so I sometimes think we're living in the, almost like a giant casino uh, that we've, we've designed that uh, tries to grab our time and attention and divert it towards sort of random purposes, um, often in the pursuit of no great profit, but just a, a little marginal money on the side. So I, I think that, that was a concern to me. I, I'm the kind of person who, I, I guess philosophically, um, thinks that uh, there's something to a life where you've chosen what you do and, and you know, the self-development of character, I think, is very important. And I think that uh, requires focus and time and uh, space, frankly. And uh, I guess I wrote the book out of some concern that maybe we're losing uh, some of that and it's harder to almost do what you want to do, no matter what that is, you know, build model airplanes or, or write a novel or, or just play an instrument, whatever that is, I kind of think it's being harder to do the things that really make it worth being, uh, being alive and human. So that's why I wrote the book. How's that? No, I think that's interesting. And, you know, we, we, we spent some time on a Stanford study that had to do with delayed gratification and kids uh -huh. picking that first marshmallow, waiting for that second or that third, and then determining success levels based on the ability to delay gratification. And I think to your point, it's just getting more difficult than ever before because there are so many calls on our attention and our gratification, and yeah. they're coming at such warped speed, and particularly if you're a parent. Uh, you're seeing this now when your own kids can comparing that over your own childhood and going, my goodness, these kids, they're on their phones. They, they don't have moments alone together. They're together on the phones, texting and chatting. And what effect does this have and what an experiment this is? Because there's never been an experiment like it ever before. No, I agree with you. To take up from that Stanford study, 
um, it's almost as if we live in a world covered in marshmallows. You know, so you never <laughs> are hungry. And so even if you're a tiniest bit hungry, um, you can grab it and gratify yourself. A different way of saying it is we've sort of lost our capacity uh, to do things that are even remotely boring. And, uh, you know, at this point, in, in fact, someone who can do something that's boring has like a magical power because everyone else seems to demand sort of constant titillation. Um, you know, I, uh, in the various jobs I've held, it, you notice a lot of people can't sit, be in a meeting. You know, they can't take it. They have to start checking their email or doing something. Um, and, you know, I mean, that's uh, fine. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't like being bored like anyone else, but I also don't like being uh, tired. But you understand to stay in shape, you need to sometimes, you know, run, run, uh, run around or do some exercise. And, you know, it'll be a little unpleasant, but it's actually good for you. I think the same thing is happening a little bit with our minds, is that we have um, just created an environment that is so full of tiny little, uh, almost like marshmallows, as I said, pleasure pots. Uh, and you see this most distinctively, as you say, in children. I'm also a parent of two daughters. And, um, you know, it's always something the older generation always says, well, in my day we walked 10, 10 miles right. to the <laughs> local bus stop and suffered through this and that. But I do think, you know, there were times when I was a kid where we had to, you know, essentially be bored a little bit to get through things. Um, and, uh, you know, I didn't like it at the time, but I think it builds a certain character not to get what you want all the time. And that's what I'm a little bit worried about. Yeah, and I, I might add that I think when you're killing time and when you have space, this is where creativity comes in. This is where your ability to fill that space yourself comes yeah. in rather than yeah. be con continually entertained by some other and alternative universe. Well, you know, most of the things that are real feats of human um, potential, in a sense, uh, you know, they can be a little hard, almost tedious uh, in, in times, writing a book, a good example. Um, you know, learning to play an instrument uh, is something I think people find very satisfying. is really hard. Yep. Um, and it doesn't reward, it's not like, you know, clicking on uh, Cindy Lauper, what's she up to now? <laughs> you know, it takes a lot of work. You have to get your fingers. I was trying to learn to play the ukulele the other day. <laughs> my daughter was like, this is an easy instrument, but it's actually, you know, you got to put your fingers in the right spot. It doesn't, it's not like clicking on something and it happens. That's right. And by the um, way, we're talking, yeah. to, we're talking to Tim Wu. The book is The Attention Merchants. Tim also happens to teach uh, at Columbia Law School, so I assume that Tim's a lawyer, and I am too. And uh, there are so many other things Tim's written about, but today the focus, again, the attention merchants, the epic scramble to get inside our heads. And when we come back, we'll dive into the book, one or two more questions about his personal life, and then we're going to let it rip. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and for the hour, we're being visited by Tim Wu, the author of The Attention Merchants, The Epic Scramble to Get It Inside Our Heads. And I don't know a parent I've been talking to in the past you know, half decade now that isn't worried about 
the never-ending onslaught of material that goes inside our kids' heads. And frankly, as we're punish them, punishing them to stop texting or to not text and drive or whatever else we're employing them to do, we're doing it ourselves. And in some senses, I think we're becoming addicted to this stuff. And the question is, are we? And what can we do about it? And what are the forces behind all of this technology? And a lot of it, many of you don't know about, which is what we're going to dive into right now and continue our conversation with Tim Wu. And Tim, you know, just a, a bit about your, your professional life as a professor at Columbia Law School. I went to the University of Virginia Law School, and intellectual property for me was one of the most interesting areas. I was going to school in the early 1990s, and what was about to happen in this world of IP was, well, everybody felt like something was about to happen, and boy, did it. Now, talk a bit about the life that you live as a, as a professional and how that might have, uh, in some ways, affected your, your desire to write this book as well. Well, sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've had a lot of uh, parts of my life that intersected with the topic of this book, which is um, both the advertising industry and the, um, the, uh, the advertising platforms, you know, the companies that, re- that gather up the crowd. So... Um, one, I mean, one uh, thing I did is I worked in marketing at one point in my life, uh, and I think it's a very eye-opening experience to work in marketing. Uh, you realize just how, uh, even for a lawyer, it's, it's, uh, it would be surprising to realize how just simplified you have to make an argument and make it again and again and again in 10, 15 different media uh, to get heard even a little bit. Yep. You know, the, the marketing is, is just about relentless, relentless repetition and really about, uh, you know, putting your, your elbow grease to the wheel, or I don't know, that's the worst metaphor I've ever used. <laughs> you know, just doing it over and over and yep. over and over again until you, to your crowd finally hits, hits what you're trying to say. Um, I, even in when I was did marketing, looked a little, did a little bit of advertising or at least commissioned ads, and it was always shocking to me what worked can never predict it. It just you throw some stuff out there, and this one hits, and, and who knows why. Um, other things, uh, you know, I've worked in, I've done some journalism, uh, written uh, for Slate magazine and, and for the New Yorker magazine, and you know that's a very instructive experience because journalists are always trying to get the attention of their readers, and you're in an incredibly competitive environment, and you learn pretty quickly some of the rules. You know, you better uh, have some kind of hook you want to write a story, you were talking about intellectual property. If you want to write about intellectual property, well, better put Harry Potter in it, and then you'll get a lot of readers. Exactly. Um, you know, so I, this is, these are things I've learned. I, I, I have also been a law uh, professor. I worked um, in the government when I was a professor um, in antitrust enforcement, and I started feeling that we didn't, in government, really understand the, the re- business models of much of the web. Uh, and that was a real challenge. Um, you know, we were investigating some of the big Internet platforms, Twitter and Google, and figuring out whether they were violating antitrust laws. And we, the, the, the kind of businesses that depend on advertising opposed to money, we weren't really well-equipped to deal with. And that was one another thing that led me to write this book. Yeah, and that's almost a separate hour that we could do on antitrust <laughs> and Google yeah. and Facebook and how ill-equipped old antitrust law is to grapple with the modern trusts and, and, yeah. and their power. But that's a separate conversation. Let's talk about advertising, let's talk about content, and let's talk about attention. Because in the end, from the earliest days, early newspapers, uh, you name it, folks were trying to sell content to get an audience so that they could sell them product. Yeah. Uh, so talk about some of the characters. You have a, a Jules Charest. Uh, you talk a little bit about Claude Hopkins. 
Talk about advertising in the 19th century, early 20th century, and, and the attention merchants of the day then. Sure. Well, one of the things I did in this book was try to figure out when advertising was invented. Uh, it's the kind of thing, you know, it's in our daily lives uh, so much now, almost every moment you can be advertised uh, to. And I just thought, well, where did this come from? Um, it actually turns out that there wasn't really advertising like we think about it before, I want to say, the late 19th century, that some of the real techniques, and by advertising, I don't just mean information presentation. I mean something that really grabs you and, and shakes you around and convinces you to buy something that you wouldn't otherwise buy. Right. So I mean you know, persuasive advertising. There's always been people uh, describing that they have something for sale, you know, like a sign in a, in a window that says, um, I don't know, ye old beer available or something. Right. But this idea of something that really uh, tries to persuade you, that, that is new. Jules Charest, who you just mentioned, um, was a Frenchman, as you can tell, uh, living in Paris, and he invented uh, the modern advertising poster. And what he did um, was create a poster that literally you could not take your eyes away from. Maybe you've seen them sometimes. they sometimes found in... Uh, cafes or bars in Paris or uh, or other uh, cities that want to be like Paris, and uh, they have usually half-dressed or scantily clad women. They're usually holding some kind of alcoholic beverage. There's the brand. It looks like they're moving. The colors are vibrant, big fields uh, of color, and these posters in the late 19th century were absolutely a sensation. No one had seen anything like this. And they said, oh, my God, you know, it's an invasion of our actual brain. And to some degree, that was true in the sense that uh, there are certain triggers that are almost impossible for us to ignore. Motion, um, uh, monstrous-looking uh, creatures, uh, beautiful women, uh, uh, in, uh, uh, motion, uh, loud noises. These things we cannot ignore. And uh, the advertising in the late 19th century, the advertising industry, the early industry, was learning how, how to use them. So he's one of the characters in the book. And let's talk about, you know, as we move into the 20th century, and we start to get real major mass media, and that's uh, essentially the radio and the television. And I would only assume that the stakes just, well, they had to get ramped up. We were talking about talking to a lot of people at the same time, and major companies wanting to get their brand noticed and purchased. And, and talk a bit about how this ramped up in the 20th century. Well, I want to give a shout out, if that's the right phrase, or explain who really ramped this up, because it's important to understand the government got into the game, um, specifically the British government, uh, through the beginnings of propaganda on a mass scale. Uh, I think the government propaganda paved the path for commercial advertising. Um, it was something of a how-to manual. Um, before World War One. Uh, most companies did not advertise. They weren't sure it worked. They thought it was uh, disreputable. Uh, it was really, in my uh, reading of the history, the British government in World War I, with its mass recruiting campaigns, the I Need You posters, the uh, rallies in the streets, that made advertising, first of all, respectable, and second of all, proved that advertising actually worked. Yep. And uh, it was adopted in the United States uh, during the Wilson administration uh, on a huge scale. I mean, unbelievable. And, and they didn't have a lot of competition. 
you know, there was not much commercial advertising, so every single space of every uh, public area was covered in posters. Uh, they didn't have radio quite yet, right. uh, but and street, open street rallies, uh, people giving speeches uh, in movie theaters at the break. That was one way people were reached, patriotic speeches. And it's as if industry looked at the, the example of government and said, well, you know, this stuff works. In fact, many of the people who had worked in the U.S. Um, uh, propaganda campaign in World War I went into advertising immediately afterwards and marketing. And uh, their idea was to take the uh, methods that had been proven so successful and, and start to use them for, for big brands. Uh, they weren't big brands yet. They were also inventing the brands. You know, we think brands have been away forever, around forever, but uh, the fact is, one there was once a time where the word Cadillac didn't mean anything, or That's right. in Dodge or Coca-Cola, these were just words, and, and, you know, they hadn't been sort of branded into our minds. It's odd, because did the brands create the mass media? Did the mass media create the brands? And in some ways, you're saying, boy, it's sometimes hard to separate the two. Um, no, that, absolutely. Well, when we come back, we're going to drill down even further and bring this to today, there are a few more steps along the way that we're going to take, and we're talking with Tim Wu, and the book is The Attention Merchants, the epic scramble to get inside our heads. And please go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do, and more important, go to amazon.com and grab The Attention Merchants. And the irony here, Tim, of course, is that we're trying to get attention to The Attention Merchants, and, and, and this is the conundrum, isn't it? Well, I'm no fool. <laughs> you know, you, you can't... Uh... Uh, do anything until you attract people's attention. I mean, that's one of the things that you, you lo- I've learned, and I think anyone who works in media uh, learns, is that it all begins with uh, attention, or even politics. You know, you can't win an election if people don't even know who you are. There's always, you know, ten candidates who no one has ever heard of who never make it. Yep. So the ability to make a splash initially is essential for uh, people to even decide whether they like something or not. You can't say, I don't like a movie, if you didn't even hear about it. (laughs) That is so true. And when we come back, we'll continue on that point. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Tim Wu, the attention merchants, the epic scramble to get inside our heads. And if you can't catch it here, go to our website and catch it there. And we'll be playing this a bunch more times through the month. We love to repurpose the content. So if you're only catching the middle of it right now, well, just stay tuned. It'll come again at you. And Tim, we left off with uh, the, the World War I experiment that proved the efficacy of advertising. Uh, just to touch on World War II as well, because we had just done an hour on Frank Capra, and he had said that the crowning achievement of his life was dropping the director mantle at Ho- in Hollywood and joining George Stevens, hanging out of B-17s and Liberators, and making the propaganda film series Why We Fight. And Americans got to watch this, this really nonstop and never-ending commercial for the war effort. Uh, talk about that, and then we'll dig into the, the advent of the uh, television era. Well, I'm uh, uh, less an expert on American World War II propaganda. There was some, but actually America had pulled back 
considerably from its World War I efforts. There had started to be a sense that um, too much, I think there was some resistance to too much propaganda. They uh, didn't want to be like Nazi Germany or, or uh, Mussolini's Italy. Right. Um, so I think propaganda had, got, had became more restrained during World War II in the United States. And there were films like uh, Why We Fight, uh, you know, but uh, there's always been, um, you know, pro-American, pro-war uh, films. That's a little different than the kind of intensity the, of the propaganda effort in World War One, where the dissidents were actually thrown in jail. And uh, World War One was much more intense yeah. uh, in the United States. In Europe, <laughs> um, Adolf Hitler uh, looked at British and American propaganda and said, "These guys are geniuses, uh, especially the British." He thought, the, "These they've got it all figured out." And uh, we want to do that, but even better and bigger and crazier. And that was um, on that model. And, you know, I don't want to link Britain to, to Hitler, but I do want to say that Hitler modeled himself after British propaganda. He had also been in advertising. Not many people know that. And, uh, uh, you know, what Hitler constructed was a sort of total attentional capture. There was no room, nowhere to put your mind other than Nazi news or Nazi entertainment when he was in charge, or more precisely, his lieutenant, Goebbels. Uh, one of the things that he pioneered, <laughs> uh, it's kind of crazy, but is this prime time where you had to sit and listen to the radio show, uh, which was you know, some music and then Hitler speaking, uh, on pain of uh, criminal punishment. So, I mean, we talk about must-see TV nowadays, but this was must-listen <laughs> must or go to jail. Slightly uh, different. Yeah. Slightly different. Yeah. And by the way, the, 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 it's no accident that every dictator seizes the media and seizes the attention of a nation. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's how important it is that if you're a dictator, you're going, I need this tool uh, to keep my people in place and to think the way they need to be thinking. Yeah. And, and they have, boy, my goodness, from someone like Castro straight to someone like Hitler, there are not a lot of other options or opinions floating out there in anywhere from the Internet to television or anywhere else. But yeah, and it has a lot to do with how free you end up feeling. I mean, you can't choose something you don't even know exists at all. That's right. That's and in Hitler's time, like, you couldn't listen to British radio at all, or it was, it was illegal, and so you had no idea of other options. And, you know, he managed to really control his population. Anyway, I, we could talk about that for hours. No, it's fascinating. Yeah, and one thing about. we don't have is a lot, lack of options today. But let's talk about the 1950s, then even the 60s, and the advent in the golden age of television. And let's talk about a character like, uh, like Paley or like Winfrey, um, talk about a couple of these legends and what you call uh, the celebrity industrial complex that we sort of have sort of today on the television side. Yeah, sure. So William Paley is a major character in, in the 20th century and in my book. He was a fascinating figure, a playboy of the old school. Um, he had uh, incredibly sophisticated taste. He loved Picasso before no, anyone knew who Picasso was. Uh, but he also had an ear for the public and what they wanted. And so he was incredibly talented at bringing CBS as sort of the great uh, and most important network in the United States, top of the ratings and television. Uh, even though NBC had gotten there first, uh, whether it was the Ed Sullivan Show or I Love Lucy or Bing Crosby or you name it, he just could figure out exactly what people wanted to hear, and, and he gave it to them. Um, uh, one of the challenges uh, of that era in the 50s is television um, became increasingly commercial. People had thought it would be, um, you know, sort of 
uh, more devoted to uh, uh, news or education. It became increasingly uh, commercial. But he did an incredible job of, of trying to build a television into something people just really by the you know, hundred, almost sometimes over 100 million people a night would be uh, watching these shows. And, uh, you know, we haven't really seen anything like it since. Uh, Oprah Winfrey plays a role in the book. Uh, she's one of the first, maybe the first, to found uh, uh, what I would call a one-woman uh, celebrity-slash-advertising-slash-production empire. She took all the functions that were divided uh, in between, um, you know, the network and the station and the and the actors, and she she made it all herself, <laughs> yep. and um, made incredible amounts of money. Uh, you know, for many years she was the by far the leading uh, earner in the entertainment industry, hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, became the first black billionaire. Um, and she just uh, is, is an important uh, innovator in this book. Also, maybe more than anyone else, used the techniques of organized uh, religion, uh, you know, made her show into a, more of a spiritual uh, kind of show, which was unusual. I mean, there was like Pat Robertson, the, the 500 Club, but Without being overtly religious, she uh, made spiritual appeals that were very uh, successful. So, you know, there are some of the people who populate this book and uh, show how our present came to be. You know, a fascinating side note, uh, Oprah Winfrey, I believe, created a ministry. And a ministry mostly organized around home stay-at-home moms, mostly white stay-at-home moms. And I don't know if you remember when Oprah suddenly decided to retire her show. But just yeah. as a side note, if you track the Nielsen's, when she decided to choose to go with an African-American president to endorse rather than the woman president, something yeah. fascinating happened. Oprah is a traitor board went up on her website. One million yeah. plus women went on and said, I'm never watching again. You chose your race over gender. They uh, were furious. You're right. That was a turning point. Um, I, I think that uh, she was probably on safer territory in the 90s. In the 2000s, she started throwing around her influence a little more. She came under uh, increasing uh, scrutiny or criticism, um, among others from organized, from organized religion. Um, but also, as you just said, during the endorsement of Barack Obama over Hillary Clinton lost, a lot of her audience had a big ratings dive. That's when she decided to finally uh, cancel the show, Although she did recover, <laughs> and then it, her last season was 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 very good. So yeah, uh, who knows? Um, you know, people uh, forgive and forget, or they I don't do. Know They're but, forgiving. Yeah. They're forgiving. But it even shows that great brands can make a mistake, and, oh, yeah. and it can cost them. And the marketplace is is punitive at times, and oh, yeah. and, and can really put you in your place. And uh, Oprah definitely felt the backlash there, and she has not endorsed candidates since. And I think you know the Johnny Carson's golden rule, which is that I am not here to, to discuss um, politics. I will lambast both sides equally, and people turn me on at night to laugh and go to sleep. Um, and his, I think this is why, in, in large measure, Johnny had, obviously there were only three networks and he was a talent, but I think that that's one of the other reasons why he had such a massive following. He didn't cut off large parts of his audience with his ideology or his opinions. You know, um, it's nice to have a few spaces that are free from politics. I yep. feel like we have fewer of those today. You know, we know every newspaper has its side. We know every show. I mean, you kind of, and you're like, oh, everything has to be linked to politics. I mean, I'm just one of these people who, you know, I like politics as much as anyone, but feels there should be some areas where, as a nation, we you know, talk about something else. I guess there's sports. Yeah, there is <laughs> but, sports. Yeah, there is sports. But uh, other than that, it seems like almost everything else has got to somehow be linked to, like, 
whether it helps the Democrats or the Republicans. <laughs> it's it's a, like, it, oh, come on. <laughs> it's a little crazy. And when we yeah. come back, we don't do that here, by the way, on Our American Stories. When we come back, our final segment and the most important, bringing us right into the present, the attention merchants, the epic scramble to get inside our heads. We're talking to Tim Wu, professor at the Columbia Law, Law School and author. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, our final segment with Tim Wu, and the book is The Attention Merchants, and let's talk about today. And we had talked earlier about that one hour that you sit down at the computer that turns into three. We all know that. We all feel it. We don't know what the heck happened, and we don't feel good about it, because now we're not getting to the stuff we want to do. Sit down with the wife and just talk for an hour. Play football with the kid. Uh, That time has now been crowded out. What's going on behind the scenes, Tim, that's making us or pulling us to spend more time than we otherwise would have planned? What are the attention merchants doing now that's different and of a different magnitude and order and sophistication than the attention merchants of TV and radio? Well, let me just start and say that the technological advances have been extraordinary. Um, uh, The the average platforms of today, and I'm thinking of the online ones, uh, just know so much more about you and are so much more practiced in their techniques of trying to get you to kind of lose control and start to drift around uh, for hours and hours. Um, it's not unlike the design of the casino, the design of the web today. It just has a, a million different little uh, blinking lights and moving pictures, and I almost find myself... Uh, my hand moving as if uh, bidden by some other force to click on, I don't know, some story about, uh, look at the secret that happened in World War II or something. Um, and now, why is it uh, so much better? So one thing is uh, the, the main advertisers and sites know a lot more about you, so that's one thing, so they can target things to try to get at you. But I think more importantly is they do a lot of experimentation. A site like BuzzFeed, which pioneered a lot of these techniques, just throws everything at the wall and becomes very good at understanding what makes people click. Uh, they just study it, and they, they keep stats, and the stuff that doesn't work gets thrown out, and the stuff that does work just uh, gets pushed over and over and over again. So I, I just think there's a lot more sophistication in the sort of cocoon we live in when we log in, um, and that's how it manages to devour so much of our time. And uh, that's one of the things I, I'm concerned about. I, as you said, you know, most of us have things we want to do, whether it's building that model airplane or, uh, I, I don't know, playing with your kids more, whatever it is, we have things we'd like to do. And then we look back and say, well, but I spent three hours clicking on pictures of cats. You think, well, what exactly? Why did that happen? How am I spending my life? And that, that is what I, I'm, I'm concerned about. And, uh, you know, I hope we can uh, start to gain some consciousness to do something about it. I, I think a point you made here, and, and it's a line that I'm going to repeat here, and I know authors sometimes cringe when their own work is quoted at them, but the quote is, the best minds of my generation are thinking about how to make people click ads. 
And, and, and by the way, some of the great scientific minds working on algorithms and all the things they're doing. And my goodness, the great, you would hope that some of these would be trying to get the next cure for cancer or Alzheimer's. Um, I think this also concerns you as well, not only the impact it's having on the people who are, who are getting dragged into this place, but so much of the great talent in this country is running to Silicon Valley to do that. No, I, I completely agree with you. Uh, you know, this country has an incredible uh, set of scientists and engineers who invented uh, more than almost any other place in history. And, um, you know, what you, you name it, from spaceflight through um, uh, the Internet itself, through the web, through some of the uh, more impressive web technologies. But a lot of that talent in Silicon Valley is right now, as you said, going to try to get people to click on ads because that's the model. Um, you know, when you think about it, how much has Facebook or Twitter really improved over the last five years? Well, they haven't. All they've done is become better at uh, uh, delivering ads in more insidious and sneaky ways. So there's a huge amount of effort going into that. I think it's a cause for for concern, frankly. Um, you know, I want to be, a, as you say, a country that's inventing things that are real new inventions and, you know, different ways of spying on people or getting them to click on a stupid little window that shows up does actually take a lot of talent, but, uh, you know, that could be <laughs> inventive talent better spent. I, I really feel strongly about that. Yep. And, and again, this is where the market, you know, sometimes can create distortions. I mean, this is, but you know, I'm not sure what the answer is. I'm not sure that there's any regulatory regime that can drive talent into another place. That's a, that's a scary idea, but maybe just the awareness of it itself is important. Talk to enough young people and they say, oh, I want to go have a career in Facebook and maybe make a face at them. Um, yeah, you know, I think the- it's changing. I think it's sort of changing. I think, you know, these things go through cycles. And I think, you know, people are trying to move to different business models. Uh, it, the technologists, you know, I talk to a lot of them. I'm a tech guy myself. And they're like, I don't, don't want to be an ad tech. You know, the talent wants to get out of there and do something else. And I, I do have some faith that we'll find our way out of this. But we are in a place where a lot of our computer scientists are in what's called ad tech, which is improving ad delivery. And, um, you know, so it is. No doubt. And, and I think the great explosion that's happening also is the content explosion. And, uh, you know, Hollywood now has budgets for Netflix uh, and the likes of budgets they haven't seen in a very long time. And what's beautiful about something like Netflix is they're, not, they're competing my attention, but for content. And they're going to get a subscription model from me. I'm going to pay them $15, and they better, over the, the, the month, give me $15 worth of really terrific content. Yeah, I mean, that, it, it can work. People are willing to pay for good stuff if you do it right. You know, and so it's all about everybody wants the same thing. Nobody likes ads. And even the companies that rely on ads, they don't love ads either. They'd rather do content. And if you can figure out the way to connect, you know, our desire to see great stuff, read interesting news, listen to great programs like this program, and, you know, the willingness to pay in an easy way, uh, you know, whether it's subscription or whatever it is, you know, it can be a happy world for everyone. It's just we got to get there somehow. And I think one of the problems is, you know, we got used to everything being free. It all yeah. has to be free or we're not ever going to touch it. And I think that has actually hurt us as a culture. I don't think it's the strength of our culture that we insist on everything being free. No, and I think free implies, in the end, stealing someone else's property. I mean, I've, also, I've often told people, when you take a song, my sister's a professional songwriter, and she's had some hit songs. I said, when you take that song, you're stealing someone else's work. Um, and then that person's not inclined to write another song, and then you will have, by theft, killed off art. 
Yeah, and, I mean, and, we, and it's a big, yeah. it's a big, it's a big problem. I think we want to have a country that's you know rich culturally as well as financially, where you know people can make money being songwriters or uh, journalists or you know having great shows like this one or you know whatever it is. Not it's not everyone is making ball bearings or something. Um, you know, and I think that takes a willingness on the population's part to pay for stuff they want to support the kind of culture they want to see. And um, with everything on an ad model, it just, everything goes towards, oh, you know, it, whatever is the most attention getting wins all the time. And I think that over time can hurt our culture. And do you think we'll get to the, the area where patrons will come in as well? I mean, when I think of the Renaissance, when I think of Michelangelo, when I think of great art commissioned over the centuries, um, to what degree will we have that too, Tim? To what degree might that fill a, a space in the end? I mean, I think it does to some degree already. It may end up doing more in the future. Uh, it may be that people can't figure out how to make money on news, and so they rely on wealthy patrons. Um, it's not like that model is perfect either. No. <laughs> you know, there's problems with that. Uh, you yep. know, you have when people support something, they decide they want to have uh, to dictate what it would say. Oh, and, sure. The, know, Soros, the, the Soros press will have the Soros opinion, and the Koch right. brothers press will have the Koch brothers press. Yeah. Um, but at least maybe there is a place where journalists of that inclination would push. People would get both, read the Wall Street Journal, read the New York Times. Between the mm-hmm. two of them, I think you'll get a pretty healthy reality check on a full scope of what different uh, orientations are thinking about a, a specific issue or a specific uh, political idea or even a particular piece of art because through the lens so many people now look at almost everything through a cultural and political lens um, right. that in the end uh, I, I see that as something that just might naturally happen Tim I'm not happy right. about it but I think down the road it might be something that that just happens we were talking during the break about and I'll, I'll make this the last point that sure. if there are too many ads, uh, or if Facebook starts to come in, by the way, my little girl said Facebook's so over. She doesn't do it. <laughs> right. And, and, and in large measure, I think it's because those kids, A, think it's uncool because I'm on it. But second, <laughs> I, they already feel the creeping invasion of ads. And they feel like it's now a commercialized platform. They hear about the stock. They hear right. about it being traded. And they're in the new, new thing. And so in the end, if Facebook starts to n- not be careful... It can face the protest vote. Yes, that's right. I think over the history of advertising, people tend to get fed up when it goes too far. And it doesn't, it's weird, it's not like a price. So with prices, if something goes to $1,000, you see a reaction right away. With advertising, it's more like people notice they're fed up and all of a sudden they start quitting. And sometimes they can be very dramatic and they all leave. Yep. You know, uh, MySpace, 2006 or so, everyone just quit at once. So, you know, when you keep adding more and more ads to something, It'll work for a while, but then you could have a total collapse. Maybe football's having that problem. I don't know. You know how football ratings are starting to go down? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, it could be the people have just, like, oh, I don't know if I have three hours to watch. I love football, but, you know, I don't know if I have three hours to watch half an hour of action. <laughs> well, you know, you're hearing from more and more people the problem that they, they encountered. And some people say it's Colin Kaepernick. And I say, no, that's not it. Here's what's it. Thursday night football, Sunday night football, Sunday afternoon football, Monday night football. It's too much. Right. And you're watering down your product. You're trying to capture too much of my attention. Would you people just do one day and maybe Monday night? And you watch. They're already pulling back, Tim, on Thursday night football. They're going to cancel it. All right. Well, any any final thoughts, Tim, uh, before we say goodbye? No, you know, I have some faith ultimately in the power of these things to fix themselves, but it requires our consciousness. It requires people to think about how they're spending their attention and 
you know, thinking about whether they're getting a good return when you spend time with something and you uh, decide to watch their ads. Are they actually giving you something in return? Uh, and, you know, if you really support things, maybe you should pay for them. Yep. You know, put your money where your mouth is and support the stuff that, uh, that really is quality. So that's well, what I want to say. I'll ask you to put your money where your mouth is here, folks, and buy The Attention Merchants. Go to Amazon.com. Again, The Attention Merchants. Tim Wu is the author. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.